and we are live. Um, uh, this is Austin from Important Call. Uh, we are doing our um, two-year anniversary panel on uh, the coup in Egypt. I'm joined by uh, Ben Norton, a blogger and activist uh, and musician and general renaissance lefty, Samia um, uh, uh, Halawa, who is a, um, an Irish citizen and also um, has strong connections with Egypt, um, including her brother, uh, who is, I'm sorry, I'm just getting an echo. We are doing our two-year anniversary I'm joined by Ben Nott. Okay. There we go. I'm sorry, I had the YouTube link running as well, and I was listening to myself, then it was a bit strange. Also, Ben Norton, uh, Samaya Halawa, who um, has been a victim of the regime herself and whose brother is still held in an Egyptian prison, Mohammed Al-Masri, who is a professor of communications at Denver University, especially focusing on uh, communications in the Arab world, and Nur Saleh, who is a activist, an activist and blogger who's focused on Egypt heavily for the last two years uh, since the coup. Um, thanks, everyone, for, for being here. Thank you. Thank, Thank you. you. Okay. Um, we're, what we're talking about, we've chosen today because today is two years since um, the uh, now president, then defense minister of Egypt, Abdel Fattah al-Sisi, declared that he had deposed the uh, elected government of Mohamed Morsi and the Muslim Brotherhood uh, Freedom and Justice Party. Um, and obviously, as we've all been seeing in the news, things are not really going very smoothly for, the, uh, for this new government. And two years on, there's been a, you know, an explosion of violence. There's an ISIS franchise very active now um, in the Sinai Peninsula. There was the killing of uh, up to 13 Muslim Brotherhood members apparently after they'd been arrested in execution style in downtown Cairo. Um, and we'll come back to that uh, more recent violence later in the discussion, I hope. But just to go back to the beginning of this coup period, there was, um, from this time two years ago, for about a month, there was a very rapid increase in oppression, peaking with the uh, Rabah massacre, um, at, which uh, occurred in August. Um, I'll, I'll go to you uh, first of all, Samaya. So you were in Egypt around this time. We, uh, if I'm understanding right, you were actually at the the Rabah massacre, or am I getting my wires crossed? Yeah, yeah I was um, around that day. Um, uh, we went to Dublin on the it was the end of July, uh, end of June. Then we started to take um, place in demonstrating in Rabah. Um, and then we were there, we did with this Rabah massacre, me, Fatima, and Umayma Brim was in there at that time. Okay, so your brother wasn't actually there during the, the mass, during the massive sit-in at Rabah and the violent um, crackdown on it, but you were. Do you want to tell, I mean, give people a sense of, of, uh, of what that was like? Did you, um, you know, w were you shocked by the, the, the sort of severity of it or? Basically, that day was um, it was um, around um, eleven o'clock when we decided we want to go home. So what what we used to happen is we would stay in Rabah for almost two three days. Um, there's a place there where we can be just left in the mosque sometimes. Sometimes we have friends over there beside Rabah, and um, then we would go every three days to kind of you know get our clothes um, washed and things like this and come back. 
that day specifically we started to get ready it was 11 o'clock then we heard people saying no don't leave it's actually they're attacking the mosque they're gonna attack the mosque and we've heard this many times since since, since we've been in Rabat so every time you could hear uh, rumors going around saying that they will actually attack so it was it was never um, it was at this time we didn't know if it was right it was true it was false then we, we, we were asked to remain um, in our place and don't move. So basically we were in a tent behind the stage. So we were, that's where our um, Egyptian Umbrella for Democracy's tent was. Um, so we weren't able even to leave the tent at this time, two hours. Um, and then we actually started to see the tear gas, um, the rubber bullets, live bullets, everything. So we started to feel even the mosque was collapsing, little pieces was collapsing, um, falling uh, from different places. But we weren't really able to see. The scene was not clear for us because, as I said, it, we were in the tent. We couldn't really see what was happening outside. Sounds pretty scary to me, anyhow. Um, uh, I, I, I don't like to imagine. Um, and we, you, I understand you were taken into custody. Was this at the time or was this later that you were arrested? No, there. Of course, that day lasted. Then you can say the lasted on from from around three, four o'clock in the morning, until eight o'clock p.m. the next day. So we, Fatima was shot by a rubber bullet at that day. Um, it was very hard for some people, for people to get in. It was very hard for us to to leave. Um, we've witnessed, you know, anything you could imagine in life. So people being shot in the head, people being shot. Um, and even people in the hospital and their friends were begging them to take them into to, they were begging the police officers, the armies to just to kind of try and help them and to take them out of the mosque and the police officer just um, shot them and they said well they're no longer alive anymore um, then because of what happened to Rabah massacre there was another protest was held in Ramses Square and that's um, a demonstration which took place on the 16th of August um, that day, by the time we we've arrived from C, so it was I think five o'clock p.m., the, it was it was hard to say. It was actually um, a huge protest. The people start to separate because it was as as again same as what happened in the Rabah massacre. There's police uh, officers, armies, thugs, and randomly killing people, um, children. Every so we just decided we we're, we're just gonna head home because it's not just safe. As we were leaving, uh, the army started to surround Ramses Square, and no longer we were able to leave the place itself. So we just said, then it was very, very close to the curfew time. So we were not allowed anyway to leave. If, if, if you were caught at this time, they actually have the right to do so and arrest you if you were caught at the, at the curfew time. So then we were, um, we just headed to the mosque, um, thinking it was the safest place at that time. And there was actually um, live, um, there was um, a few channels, there was Al Jazeera live at this time, there was Al Hawar as well. Um, and this is, I think, this is where at one stage felt we're a bit safe because, you know, the world can see us, no one can see, can, no one, no, they actually can't do anything to us. But once, the, the connection was lost, no able, they were no longer, uh, they can't, it couldn't, there was no life anymore. They actually attacked the mosque and was, this was around 8 o'clock, uh, sorry, 12 o'clock p.m. the next day. Okay, and is, that's, so this is, uh, again, still before you were actually taken into custody, because my understanding from um, our social media producer, Johnny, is that you and your sisters, um, also we should just mention for our audience, audience uh, Somia mentioned her sister Fatima, 
that was one of their whole family, basically all four siblings, three sisters, and one brother were in custody for a period. Is my understanding? Is that correct? Yes, that's true. So we four of us were in the mosque. So me, Fatima, Umaima, and Ibrahim. Um, at four at twelve o'clock, they started to throw tear gas inside the mosque and uh, live bullets, rubber bullets. We were trying to hide as much as we can, but from the tear gas, me, I fainted, and Umaima fainted. So we kind of we got separated at this time. I got separated from my siblings. Um, when I woke up, um, I was with thirty-three girls and few boys. I asked the armies, where is everyone else? He said, everyone's gone home, and you, you, I can take you home as well. I just didn't feel safe. I said, no, I will stay with these people. Um, it was around 3, 4 o'clock p.m. when we had to leave the mosque. Um, only only uh, Egyptian media were allowed inside the mosque. Um, no other, no, they weren't allowed any other medias at this time. We were taken from outside, from inside to the outside. That was, an, was another story, like... Um, so armies were trying to, to take off your clothes and they were just pulling you from everywhere from your body and the men we had, men who were protesting with us, who were with us in the mosque, those are the people who were trying to save us so it's not the police officers, it's not the armies and then we were shown inside a van which doesn't fit 10 people, we were around 40 at this time um, people started to faint. Some people, like we had a, a, a man who died inside because they were. Um, some people had the problem with their heart. It was really, really um, toughy, and there's hardly oxygen inside. By the time we arrived, we went. We arrived to a place called military Torah military camps, and there where uh, I found my other siblings. Um, I found Fatima, Umayma, and Ibrahim. Ibrahim uh, had his hand wrapped um, as he was bleeding at this time. I asked him what happened. He said, while I was leaving the mosque, I got shot um, uh, from the armies or the police officers. Um, of course, he was denied um, medical treatment until this day. Um, then we were taken to Assalam military camps. Um, actually, this day it was it was it was it was until this day I don't know the answer to this. We were almost 33 girls. The 30 girls was left to leave to go home at this day and we were the only people, we were the only three um, girls who stayed and um, you know we were taken, um, we were arrested. So the other 30, the other 30 girls, they only investigated with them and then they had and they let them go at the same day. But we didn't. We didn't leave it that day. So we had a Turkish journalist. His name is Matin, but he was um, released two months after us. So then we were taken to a place called the Salam military campus. Um, Salam was um, is kind of a, you can say a underground place. Uh, we were we were um, thrown. We were put in a with another. So a subterranean prison, physically under the ground. You mean? Yeah, it is. It is. Um, and, mili and, and the the military camps, the Torah military camps, was also it's not it's not pretty where people are uh, military. It's it's actually an inhumane place. Like uh, humans can't, we couldn't stand it for one day. I don't know how we managed to stay there for days. We were denied food, we were denied toilets, even our basic human rights. Our family came over to. To try and um, to, to ask if we were there, they said we, we don't exist in that place. Um, it's three days later when my family knew where we were actually. Um, then from a salam. So, 
So I'm sorry, you, 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 the, the three girls were released after three days, were you saying? or The 30 girls. So we were 33 girls there um, taken from inside the mosque. There were, um, we were the only three girls, uh, three sisters were, uh, were left behind. Okay, you were kept, and how long were you kept? How, I mean, were you kept for a period of months or, or, or weeks or just a few days? Yes, so then we were taken to Al-Marq prison, Al-Qanata prison, religious prison. We were left there for three months. Three months. Yeah. And when you got out, was that because, I mean, you're, you're all Irish citizens as well. When you got out, was that because of any intervention from the Irish government or did it just seem to be an arbit another arbitrary decision by the, by the military? Sorry, when we were released? Sorry, I can't hear you properly. When you were released, was there any um, sign of involvement from the Irish government um, on, on your behalf as, as Irish citizens, or did it just seem to be something that the military decided on their own? I hope this was the answer, but it's not, because we, when we were in, inside, um, we actually we were treated as non we were treated as an Irish and Egyptian citizen, so we weren't really treated um, as a proper, uh, pure Egyptian citizen. Every time we said we have a right to this, they say, no, you're not an originally Irish. We, we've, with this problem, we're still facing until that day with Ibrahim. Um, um, no, we were just released all of a sudden. We were, every time we go to a so-called hearing, we were mute 45 days. The day we were actually released, we were just called for a hearing um, and no reason we were just released. And we don't know the reason why we're re we were released and Ibrahim still remains behind bars. And yes, since then, of course, your brother Ibrahim Halawa has been uh, held for two years, um, nearly exactly, right? Um, yes. And uh, there's been a, a real um, surprising sort of lack of attention from it in, in the Irish uh, you know, public sphere, in politics, the media. Um, it's because people, there have been cases of uh, foreign citizens who have been released upon um, uh, renunciation of their Egyptian uh, passports. There was an American citizen, uh, American Egyptian dual citizen who uh, was released on that basis. Do you have, um, uh, do, do you know, are you, do you have any sort of contact with the Irish authorities? Do you feel like there's any support for you? Is there much of a support for, uh, group for your network, rather, for your family? Um, in Ireland or? Basically when I was released it was all of a sudden I had to start a campaign which I have no clue how to do it so um, I started by the Irish government obviously because this is where I need to start but then six months later I felt I'm not getting a, a proper response, I'm not getting a proper support and um, the answer I'm getting we can't intervene in a judicial process um, even though the at one stage in Geneva they said they don't believe they just, there is a judicial process so they're con contradicting themselves um, the answer uh, there at one stage I felt okay are they actually supporting what's happening in Egypt they're actually not going they've never came out in the media and say we're concerned about this mass trial because Ibrahim is all Ibrahim is along uh, with 490 or others, uh, so it means which means that this is the longer, the longest case in in since the coup took place, um, Al Fatih case. It's they've, they've never had a proper trial. Every time something happens, um, they postponed it or they delay it or the judge decides to leave. The Irish government never came out concerning about what's happening in Egypt. 
annoyed or 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 um, you know defending um, Ibrahim and so everything every time there's a hearing or there is something happens they say well this is up to the judge and this is up to the system in Egypt and this is uh, we can't intervene and it's 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 actually becoming to a stage we've been in Ireland I wasn't born in Ireland I was in born um, in, in Egypt so Ibrahim is an He's, he was born and raised in Ireland. So when I come and say to myself, maybe when I was in prison, that's the way they needed to deal with me because I'm not originally Irish. But why? Why are they still doing doing this with with Ibrahim? Um, do they? Sometimes, like I just had to to to, to question my question some um, question. You know, have those questions in my mind, and the answer to it, I actually don't have it until this day. Do they actually believe Ibrahim is innocent or do they actually believe Ibrahim is not innocent? Um, is, uh, it is it possible, I might suggest that they don't care, um, is, is also a factor to consider. I had a brief, a brief altercation with the Egyptian um, judicial system. Uh, when I was in Egypt, a uh, woman I'm now married to and two others as well were all uh, charged. And I, I had a similar kind of deal from the Australian, um, when I was dealing with the Australian Consular Service, that, oh no, we have to respect the independence of Egypt's judiciary, which is, of course, a bit like respecting, you know, the, the, the fairness of Santa Claus. It's just, it's not a thing. There is no independence of the judiciary then and there is it now. Um, I, I think, actually, if I can, I'll get Mohammed al-Masri to jump in at this stage, because there's two things I really wanted, uh, I thought you could pick up on, um, which is, firstly, these mass trials, which, one of, which Ibrahim is has been a, one of the subjects of, and secondly, this the, the, the discourse on on the sort of the role of the judiciary in Egypt, which has been key, um, in fact, into the propaganda for the propaganda of the coup to get started, depended on this idea that Morsi was becoming a dictator by trying to circumvent this very same judiciary. So perhaps you could um, give us a, a, an idea of the scale and frequency of these mass trials and how quickly they go and so forth. And just comment a bit more on the role of the judiciary in this whole um, political dynamic of Egypt. Sure. Um, first of all, I just wanted to correct you. I'm I'm no longer at the University of Denver. I'm at the University of North Alabama. Um, in terms of, and if I could just piggyback on something that Fatim was saying um, at Rabah, I encourage everyone to read the Human Rights Report um, that was produced by Human Rights Watch. It's called All According to Plan. It was released about one year after the Rabah massacre, and it's a it's a pretty comprehensive um, detailing an, an account of what actually happened. And they say that the military was, um, I mean, the police were the ones actually doing the shooting, but they went in with the intention of killing. A large number of people. They were shooting to kill. They have primary evidence that they were shooting to kill, evidence of people that were clearly unarmed and actually carrying dead bodies on their shoulders. Those people were 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 shot um, at at point blank range. Um, and not only that, but the I have a friend whose brother was shot to death, shot in the head and killed um, at Rabah. And when he went and tried, he's an American Egyptian, my, my friend is, and when he went to, to get the body, they gave him a death certificate that said that he had died of natural causes, that his brother had died of natural causes. And he said at the, at the health ministry office 
that there were hundreds of people that just accepted those death certificates. Um, the government was doing that to try and deflate, systematically deflate the casualty figures. My friend did not accept that. He's an American Egyptian. He's very keen on justice and human rights. So he actually traveled all around Cairo to try to get a proper death certificate. He was threatened with death. They threatened. They said that they were going to kill him. They also said that they would burn the body. But he was undaunted by that, and ultimately he got a proper death certificate saying that his brother was shot to death. And only then, um, about a 24 hours after the, this whole ordeal started, was he able to get the body and then bury his, his brother. Um, in terms of the judiciary, um, the judiciary is part of Egypt's deep state. There are four big institutions that have been really running Egypt in different ways uh, for, for decades. The military, the, um, the police, the media, the media apparatus, and then also the judiciary. Um, during that Morsi period, and actually even before Morsi, after Mubarak, the dictator, was ousted, uh, the judiciary was playing an obstructionist role. They had disbanded the democratically elected parliament. They disbanded the constitutional assembly, the first one. Then they threatened to disband the second assembly. They threatened to rescind a very important decree that Mohamed Morsi had uh, delivered as soon as, almost as soon as he was elected, that effectively removed the military from politics. They're very corrupt. These are judges. The senior judges were appointed by Mubarak himself. And Mubarak was very keen on making sure that these judges stayed in place. So one of the things that he did was he systematically increased the age limit for judges. He increased it from 60 to 65 and then he increased it from 65 to 70 so he could keep this loyal group of veteran judges. And those are the, the same people that were obstructing Egypt's democratic moves forward. After the coup, it's been more of the same, but the judiciary's actions have been intensified. Um, and you mentioned, Austin, these mass trials and these mass death sentences, which, is, which have been condemned by all of the human rights groups that have that have covered them. Um, just to give you one example, the very first mass death sentence was issued back in the spring of 2014. This was a trial that lasted, or I should say the sentence came after a trial that lasted a total of about three hours. And there were more than 500 defendants. They were not allowed to pre uh, present uh, any sort of defense and they were all convicted uh, of killing a single police officer. So more than 500 men convicted for, uh, for killing one police officer. Some of those who were convicted were already dead. Some of those at the time of the crime, um, some of those convicted had already been in jail at the time the alleged crime was committed. So it was a completely absurd uh, set of circumstances, and these, these men were all sentenced, of course, sentenced to death. There were three subsequent mass death sentences, so we have a total of four now. Um, so I think it, I'd have to look at the numbers, but it's something like 1,500 people that have been sentenced to death in these mass trials 
um, that are very short and where they're not even allowed to present uh, any sort of defense um, uh, uh, for themselves. So, yeah, the, the judiciary is uh, is sort of just it's in the back pocket of the executive, uh, Abdel Fattah Sisi. Um, we have some evidence that there's not as really not as though we need it, but we have uh, evidence uh, of uh, interference in the judiciary by the executive, uh, tampering with court cases. Um, so um, it's all part of uh, Egypt's uh, campaign to eliminate all opposition. Uh, you have to read the actions of the judiciary in the context of what's happening in Egypt. The most important opposition, including the largest uh, and most organized party in Egypt, has been eliminated. Um, all of the opposition television networks have been shut down. We've had more than 40,000 people arrested. We've had mass killings in the streets, the largest massacres of protesters in modern world history. Um, it's all a part of eliminating the, uh, the opposition, most notably the Muslim Brotherhood, who won five straight democratic elections after the, uh, after the, uh, the coup. I'm sorry, after the, the ousting of Mubarak. Um, but also any other opposition, like the April 6th movement and you know, uh, liberal uh, secular opponents of the regime, regime as well. So um, the judiciary is part of that. They're doing the bidding of the, of the executive. I um I, you mentioned the media there briefly. I'd like if 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 you can just to sort of revisit the issue of the media. So Maya was talking about you know that there were still sympathetic channels broadcasting um you know during those sort of those uh, you know frenzic uh, sort of frantic days around the time of the coup when she was arrested and so forth. But you know and then once that they were cut off, uh you saw the military sort of unleashed and um even less showing even less restraint than it had been showing. Um. What's interesting to me is, well, of course, when you when you present this evidence to a lot of people um, uh, in the sort of anglophone world, they say, oh well, the Muslim Brotherhood was doing that anyhow. The Muslim Brotherhood was clamping down on free speech anyhow, and there were uh, some cases brought um, against critics of the President Mohammed Morsi as for insulting the president and under these very or various laws during his tenure. But do you, can you try and you know, as a professor of you know media studies, can you try and give us a clearer picture um, of what was the media situation like under the Muslim Brotherhood, and then how did that change? Just talking about the sort of the domestic media, and then we'll broaden up the conversation in a minute and bring Ben and Noor in, and we'll talk about the international media as well. Sure. Um, well, it's it's a complex picture, but during that Morsi period, during the one year in which Morsi was president, um, there was a very vibrant uh, media environment, uh, press freedoms were at an all-time high for Egypt. One of the issues, there were two, two, a uh, couple of issues. Um, one was that the independent media, the privately owned media, went on a very aggressive campaign to demonize Mohammed Morsi and the Muslim Brotherhood. They abandoned all norms of professionalism, and I dare say that much of what they were saying on their broadcast would not have been allowed, legally allowed, even in some Western uh, uh, countries, uh, where there are some reasonable res restrictions on what the press can uh, can can and cannot say. Um, just to give you an example, I mean, they were going on television claiming in serious news reports that Mohammed Morsi had a plan in place and actually had a contract in place 
to sell the pyramids, the, pyra the great pyramids of Giza. Um, there were reports that Morsi was going to sell the Suez Canal. There were reports that uh, Morsi was going to give away the, Sin the entire Sinai Peninsula to... There, there, were, there were maps that circulated, I remember, maps showing the whole sections of Egypt that were going to be sold off to foreign powers. Yeah. Of course, it's hilarious because the people who are saying this are largely pushing the agenda of a military that is, you know, in the pocket, literally on the payroll of foreign powers to, you know, to the tune of billions of dollars. Yeah, it's, I mean, and I just want to emphasize, these were, this is not like The Onion or something. These are serious news reports in major daily newspapers, and then most importantly, on all of the late night uh, news talk shows. Egypt is a news talk show culture. 40% of the people are illiterate, and so you have these huge talking heads, sort of the Bill O'Reilly's of Egypt, and there are many of them, um, and they have millions and millions of viewers, and they were going on TV uh, spouting this, this nonsense, and many people were believing it, including people, I'm kind of ashamed to admit, but at my old university, the American University in Cairo, I, I mean, I came across academics who, who believed these things quite, quite firmly. Um, there was. Um, I think. I think it's worth stopping for a second and pointing out the important. The the alumni of the uh, American University in Cairo have a very special role. I think in sort of like students, professors, the the community around that university have a very special role in interfacing with the West. When Noam Chomsky came to speak in Egypt, he spoke in uh, the AUC uh, hall. Um, they have a sort of privileged position. It was interesting because you know you have the front row of the, the hall is reserved for people like Amr Musa um, and people who, you know, Chomsky has been a vociferous critic of for, mm -hmm. for decades, but they were still having the privileged position of front row seats at his, at his talk because it was held at this, you know, essentially a, a, an imperial institution, what is an American university in, a, a, you know, which is a foreign culture um, university, which is also where the elite or many of the elite of uh, Egypt and Cairo go. So there was this, a lot of um, you know people from leftist groups, the revolutionary socialists, who a lot of global leftists were looking to uh, for analysis and understanding of the situation, also center around the American University in Cairo. It's this interesting place where you've got some great academic quality, but also this the bias of privilege, which it's a very privileged institution. Anyhow, I'm sorry to interrupt. Sure, sure. And some of the some of the, the scholars at AUC did a really nice job of covering what was happening, and some others didn't, in my in my estimation. But speaking of the AUC, I, and just on this point about the media's role in all of this, I did a study a couple of years ago, and my research team and I we went out and interviewed journalists in Egypt, and one of the things that we found is that journalists at these private newspapers were very proud of the fact that they were intentionally biasing news reports against Mohamed Morsi. They thought that this was part of their nationalistic duty, whereas in the United States or in Ireland or in Australia, we would privilege objectivity and fairness and balance. They thought it was their nas national duty to try and demonize Morsi and the Brotherhood, and they actually showed us, they gave us examples of, and of how they and their editors would sort of bend over backwards to demonize the Brotherhood in these very misleading uh, reports. So that was the environment, and in that context, Mohamed Morsi did press uh, file charges. I believe there were three cases that the presidency filed 
um, against journalists. Um, and, I, and I don't necessarily agree with Morsi for doing that, but I think it's important to place that within the larger context. Now, after the coup, things have become much more hysterical. All of the opposition media has, has been shut down, as I mentioned, and so you have only one voice. It's a hysterical, hyper-nationalist, pro-military voice. They're demonizing the Brotherhood as devils and cockroaches. They're justifying the mass repression. Just to give you one example, and I don't want to go on too long, but we're talking about the Rabah massacre on August 14, 2013. On that day, or in the, in the day, I think it was the day after, one of the private networks called On TV, which is a very popular network uh, viewed by millions of people, they were airing footage of the dispersal of Rabah, and they had this, uh, first they had like this pro-military music, and then they went into, you know, showing this very heroic footage of the military, and then they started playing the, the music for the movie Rocky, if you're familiar with that music, right? Dun, 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 dun. Right? They're, they're, they're actually playing the Rocky music. And at that point, one of my American students actually emailed me and he said, I, I don't even have words for what I'm describing. He said, I'm watching on TV and they're playing the music for Rocky, showing these people dispersing um, a protest. Obviously, they're not showing the gunshots. They're, not show, they're showing the military, you know, clean up the, the, the rubble and so on and so forth. But this was a massacre of at least 800 people, probably much more. Those are just the numbers that Human Rights Watch was able to confirm. And they're being portrayed as heroes. The media figures came out and thanked them. They said, you are our heroes. You've defeated the, the, the treasonous Muslim Brotherhood. Um, and so this was actually something, while it was being condemned everywhere in the world, in the sane part of the world, it was actually being celebrated in Egypt through these media networks. That's, um, it's, that's a great example of how really sort of blatant and bloodthirsty a lot of the media coverage in Egypt was. Um, what I was hoping to do now is, what's amazing, what was amazing to me is was seeing some of this coverage, um, seeing the, the local coverage and how blatantly anti-democratic it was, you know, for months. There, was, there were headlines in Egypt in Major Delhi's calling for a military coup. And then in that context, you had left-wing commentators and sort of commentators who were normally seen as pro-national um, you know, sovereignty and anti-foreign interference and, and pro-democracy and so forth, um, still taking the side of anti-Morsi protesters. And I'm, what's, what's interesting to me is how did that happen? I'd really like uh, maybe Ben and Noor could uh, jump in at this point. Noor and Ben, can you guys unmute your microphones? Um, I'm sorry to have kept you guys out of the conversation so long. Um, I'm really curious. Maybe Noor, you go first. You were working with sort of Palestine activism um, and so forth at the time. About what's what was it that um, uh, made you realize, you know, that there was this? How do you think it happened? How do you think it happened that the left got so um, uh, spun when there was such sort of blatant you know, demonstration of what was actually going on in Egypt? I think, you know, Muhammad's point was very, was very accurate. You had, it, it, it was a very gradual process. If we remember two years ago, uh, 
the Liberals that were supporting the coup, their reasons for it were, you know what, we need to prevent the civil war. You know what, this is good. Look at what's happening in Sinai. Things are a disaster. This is for, you know, for the best of Egypt. They had a lot of justification for it. And all these reasons, they, the narrative quickly shifted from we're averting a civil war to suddenly actually Sisi's coming out saying give me a mandate, let's go fight them, to these are terrorists, to actually calling them sheep, to just plain out celebrating their murder. You, I, I had Egyptian friends seeing them on my timeline the, the day of the massacre, so I'm watching the live footage, I was watching it from one of the channels, seeing people being killed in front of my eyes and then going on Twitter and seeing friends celebrating, rejoicing that these sheep are being massacred. So you actually have this gradual process where it starts off just one slight respect of, you know what, we're doing it so that we don't have a civil war, we're doing it because they weren't so inclusive, we're doing it because it's an incompetent government. They, it started out really mellow-toned and then it just sort of snowballed into a constant demonization, a constant where it's reached a point that you, at the end of the day we don't care. We don't care. Anything can happen to you, it doesn't matter because we're going to throw on a label of Islamists and which is quite shocking because if you remove all these labels, if you take away secular or liberal or revolutionary, uh, Islamists, Salafi, whatever, once you leave them, it was actually the Islamists that were going out saying, where is my vote? I went through not one, not two, not three, not four, but five elections. I voted again and again and again. And you're telling me at the end of the day, I'm sorry, your vote doesn't count. You told me the importance of democracy, the importance of working within a system to change, to embrace change. And when they did work within the system, it wasn't good enough. It was actually, it's not all about the ballot box. It's about, you know... I remember, I remember that it's not all about there's more to democracy than voting, to which I used to say, exactly. yeah, and there's more to soccer than kicking the ball, but it's kind of important. Um, Ben, I'll get you to jump in if you can. I know we've, we've uh, kept you uh, waiting a long time. I mean, how do you think, because normally when, when, when Mohammed was describing the, the press situation where you have this um, fiercely aggressive corporate press and an, an administration that pushes back through libel cases or other sort of judicial means, and then that gets described as, you know, dictatorial control of the press, we see that all the time in the co in the coverage of Venezuela, Latin America, these places where, but then at least they've got the Western left on their side because they're socialist governments, and we uh, we we're going to take a sympathetic view. Obviously, the social conservatism of the Muslim Brotherhood alienated a lot of the Western left. But is that all that happened, or was you know was was it more? I mean, I think personally that there was a, a degree of misrepresentation by important sort of interlocutors in Egypt of what was going on. What's, what's your take? How did we get it so wrong? Yeah, I mean, I agree with everything that you had said and everything that others had said. I think, actually, Noor raised a really interesting point about a kind of knee-jerk fear of any movements that are Islamist. And I think when, and this is equally present on the, on the Western left, and, and I think when you look at 
the reactions to the Muslim Brotherhood, I mean, aside from critiques of social conservatism and such, um, and aside of critiques of presenting Morsi as a neoliberal, and I can maybe address that in a second, I think that's an interesting point, but I do think there is this idea that the Muslim Brotherhood were not genuine revolutionaries, and I think even if you look at um, different documentary coverage and different films, like uh, Muslim Brotherhood then the revolution, right? Even though it has this enormous mass support among the Egypt population. I'm sorry. I'm sorry, Ben. Do you think you could kill your camera and say that again? Because the, the words got a bit chewed up and came out like a, a bit of a, a bit robot-y. Is that okay? Yeah. Can you hear me? I can hear you better now. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so I think um, so. There, there are a few different approaches here, but I think what's interesting is, like I said, there's this kind of um, knee-jerk opposition to any movements that are Islamist. And I think what's interesting is if you look at the representation of the revolution you know, going back to 2011, in, you know, documentaries and even very progressive media, there's this impression that a lot of people, uh, you know, promote that the Muslim Brotherhood somehow co-opted the revolution, which is, of course, ridiculous considering the Muslim Brotherhood has by far the largest mass base of support, particularly among the Egyptian working class and things like that. And, you know, I think um, what's interesting is you look at these people who say the Muslim Brotherhood is genuinely not this revolutionary organization, blah, blah, blah. They don't, um, they but, don't have any Che patches sewn onto their clothing or bags. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And um, Nodore is a good point. I mean, the people who were saying, you know, we want to vote, we want this, these democratic rights, etc., were largely, you know, members of the Muslim Brotherhood. And I think if you know anything about popular movements today in the Middle East, you understand that the, the most revolutionary organizations, particularly among the youth, are Islamist. And a lot of leftists in the West, and even just like liberals and secularists, are stuck in this impression back in the you know, 60s and 70s with you know, Nasserist movements and Baathist movements and things like that. So they have this impression that you know, the so-called real revolutionaries are secularists, etc., etc. And, and, and they... Uh, essentially just echo all these Orientalists and even Islamophobic myths um, in response to that. So, I mean, you know, you look at many of the critiques of Morsi and you can see the kind of thing, oh, you know, he's um, trying to impose Sharia and things like that on people, which is hilarious because, you know, then you look at, um, you know, more religious conservatives in Egypt who criticize Morsi for, you know, um, being what they saw as too secular and things like that. So, a recent article by Muhammad pointed out very, um, uh, very succinctly um, that what that there was actually a de debate specifically over this, whether Egypt would change the constitutional uh, clause relating to Sharia from what exactly. it's been for ages, which is that it is based on the principle that law is based on the principles of Sharia, to a more concrete no, law is based in Sharia, and Morsi was on the side of keeping it in the more open and loose interpretation, which wouldn't tie down governments to a strict fundamentalist reading. And I've, I've often said actually to some extent the Muslim Brotherhood were the sort of liberal middle class uh, uh, section of Egyptian society, um, which they're always presented as the threat to. But please go on. Yeah, well I think you raise a good point there. What's funny is, you know, the interpretation um, in the constitution um, that Morsi advocated was a Sadat era interpretation. You know, this is not something that the Muslim Brotherhood itself created. I mean, this is this is uh, this is something that has precedence for since the 1980s and things like that. So, I mean, there 
there is a lot of hypocrisy, and I think a lot of it, frankly, comes down to ignorance, frankly, of the subtleties of politics, not just in Egypt, but in, in general, the Middle East and North Africa. And I think, frankly, I mean, you know, the left tends to be much more educated on political issues, but at the same time, a lot of the left, when it comes to Islamist movements and things like this, they just learn a few talking points, and then they just recite the talking points ad, like, um, ad nauseum over and over again. So, like, for instance, one that you heard a lot, and, you know, I th there are critiques to be made of this, but at the same time, we have to understand the context. There's the point that, okay, Morsi was trying to take a uh, $4 billion loan from the IMF and things like that. And what people would do is they would just, like, learn these few talking points and recite them. And, you know, I, I have some... Neoliberal. Sorry? Therefore, he's neoliberal. Oh, I mean, exactly. actually, yeah. you... There, there, there was there was talk of loans with for Ecuador with the IMF one of the you know the, this so-called socialism for the 21st century countries of Latin America similarly used to then by some critics to discredit um, you know the Correa here as a neoliberal and try and cut him off from that support base in the West that doesn't have nearly as much success as it does when they're doing it with Islamist groups though oh exactly and actually it's it's funny that you raise that point because this is something I've discussed with a lot of people in the past few years but I find the you know, I mentioned like the knee-jerk Islamophobia essentially. Really ironic when you consider how enthusiastically the same Western leftists support uh, liberation theology movements in Latin America. Because we see, I think, we see very comparable movements in, Latin, in um, the Middle East and North Africa in different Islamist movements. We see this kind of very politically engaged liberation theology that is rooted in Islam rather than Christianity. But then these Western leftists who know nothing about Islam, and and even though they might criticize Islamophobia, in the back of their heads they still see it as this reactionary religion. When they see a similar movement in the Middle East, they're not willing to support it. And, you know, part of that perhaps is because in a lot of liberation theology movements in, in Latin America, they're overtly leftist. But again, there's this... There's this there's this lack of understanding that, as you said, I mean, the revolutionary socialists are a very privileged group. You know, Gigi Ibrahim and others that, like, speak very good English and have a web presence, and they can, and like, market the Orange County. <laughs> yeah, and they can, like, market the revolution to the West, to people who speak English and are secular and all these things. Whereas, you know, a lot, as was mentioned earlier, I mean, with the incredible poverty and um, illiteracy widespread among you know, um, impoverished parts of Egypt, you know, they, they can't just get on the internet and talk in English and, you know, make friends with Western leftists so they can support them, whatever that even means anyway. I think it's uh, actually greatly exaggerated, particularly among leftists, uh, the, the import they actually have, like, in the world. Yeah, I think that's, that's, that's one of the biggest, one of the biggest um, uh, sort of deceptions is the, the importance of secular left-wing uh, Western-looking um, uh, groups in Egypt, Egyptian politics, they sort of, you know, make out as if that they would, you know, as a, a reporter who was in Egypt, I, I would constantly be told, oh, you know, Egypt really has a secular heart. You know, the brother, like before the elections um, happened, if you were around um, before the first voting started happening, if you were around Tahrir Square and that the sort of scene associated with that, you'd constantly be hearing that, oh, don't worry, the Brotherhood won't win any elections. Right, and it's sort of um, they created this myth of their own importance, um, which then helped them create the idea that there's you know that they are this sort of vital revolutionary, the true bearers of the of the torch, so to speak, and they're being suppressed 
by the opportunistic brotherhood. Um, when, of course, you know, the Brotherhood suffered through repression for decades. And, and I, I wanted to, to quickly link this up with what the mainstream media um, as well, because normally what was, what was amazing to me is recently I um, was looking for articles from the time, and just in the Google results, there were you know, five or six headlines of Egypt's second revolution. One was Financial Times, one was Marxist.com. So you had this sort of unity of Western, the Western commentariat from left to right. In, in supporting this second revolutionary moment, which in hindsight is clearly counter-revolutionary. And I think part of the reason for that goes right back to the um, beginning of the revolution, you know, to before that rather, this, this decades of anti-Islamist and anti-Islam propaganda, you could say centuries even in the West, but in, in, in the case of the Egyptian sort of Twitterati, they were, it was amazing to me how much the secular um, voices they had absorbed what was essentially the regime propaganda against the Brotherhood, the demonization, how deeply that shaped their view, and the, the mirror of that in the West, how deeply, as you mentioned, suspicious of Islam, so many um, even progressive uh, people in the West are. One thing, I, I, just on this point, I want to hammer it home. I remember as the Brotherhood was, uh, sorry, as the revolution was first um, taking off, the Sydney Morning, sorry, the Australian newspaper, the biggest daily newspaper in Australia published an editorial where it slammed the Brotherhood for their, you know, reactionary ways. And what they did, they dug up a quote. They went back to, I think it was Sayyid Qutb, or it may have been Hassan al-Banna. I'm sorry, I don't have the quote in front of me, but a quote de denouncing jazz music as the degenerate music of the Negro. Um, and this was a quote from the, sort of the 20s or some uh, or 30s or some period like that. And there was no sense of self-consciousness of what the Australian newspaper itself was saying at that time. That at that time, the Australian newspaper or the equivalent Australian uh, press would have been, you know, uh, enthusiastically endorsing this, uh, the white Australia policy and, and sort of overtly publishing, you know, the Chinese opium menace, blah, blah, blah. So you've got this sense that, oh, the, they, they, they go back, you know, decades to find something reactionary and racist sounding that the Brotherhood have said. And then from that context, uh, they, they, you know, you had the drum beating immediately. Um, as soon as the revolution was happening, you had the drum beating for this fear the Islamists. The Islamists are coming. They're going to take over, and it's going to be disastrous. We better we're better off going back to a, um, a military dictatorship, which can contain these crazy people. And then what happened was around two years ago, you had the leftists and progressives who would never openly um, say these things, basically come up with their own version of it. Basically, come up with their own more subtle, and I, you know, to use the term dog whistling, I don't think is is inappropriate. Their own more um, understated uh, narrative, but which still relied on these essentially racist um, and propagandized uh, ideas about Islamists and Islam. Yeah, I mean, I agree entirely. I think, especially the the point that you hit on the head is how, um, perhaps unwittingly. Western leftists who, you know, consider themselves so revolutionary and progressive ended up just echoing not just Egyptian regime propaganda, but even Western corporate media propaganda. And I think, like, another interesting thing that I remember hearing uh, as, like, proof, for instance, that, that as you had mentioned, supposedly, you know, Egypt is actually, has this wide secular base, and actually the Muslim Brotherhood is encroaching on that. And people said, you know, Hamdim Sabahi, uh, got 20% of the uh, the vote in the first election, and Morsi got like 25%. Blah blah blah. So actually, like, there's going to be this Nasserist revolution, and et cetera, et cetera. 
without like understanding any of like the nuances of Egyptian history and all these different things. So it's it's just funny to see like, um, I mean, as you had mentioned, like uh, there's there's no nuance in the understanding of the role. Even looking back at Nasser and things like that, there's no nuance of understanding of the role of Islamic politics and or Islamist politics rather within these movements because you know. Uh, Nasser wasn't a, a, in the Western sense was not a secular leader in these kinds of things, and I, there's just this Sorry, I think that's that's very interesting. The um the, the role of Nasser and the, and the sort of idealize the, the way the, the left idealized Nasser and Nasserism um, is important. I I I also think it'd be great. I, I want to open up so everyone can kind of uh, jump in again a bit um, now, especially. Mohammed, um, uh, you know, you've done a great deal of d discussing about how the current regime is uh, not at all secular either. Um, I want everyone unmute your mics now. I want people to just sort of just be a bit more um, uh, uh, freeform here. Um, sorry, not to cut Ben off. I just want to sort of get things a bit more loose before the end here. Um, Mohammed, you were um, you've written extensively about Ali Guma and other sort of figures who are sort of factor on demand. Uh, religious scholars for the regime, um, and as Ben just mentioned, that goes right back that there was religious elements of these supposedly secular military regimes for you know since uh, this the very beginning. Right. So I think it's important for people to understand that you know while there are some secularists in Egypt and there are some you know atheists or agnostics, overwhelmingly Egypt is a is a very uh, religious society. The Christians in Egypt are very religious, by and large, and the Muslims in Egypt are very religious. So any leader, whether it was Mubarak or Nasser or Sadat or Sisi, has to project himself as um, a pious, a pious man. And Sisi has actually been very aggressive. If you look at his speeches, he's been very aggressive in terms of his his sort of his discussions about Islam, his discussions about God his notion that he's pleasing God or seeking to please God. Um, he said God his, sent him as a doctor to cure Egypt. Right. That's that's a great point, Ben. He, and, a couple he of weeks, a dream, and he had a dream with a glowing Omega watch, which showed him the future or something like that as well. These are public statements this guy makes. Yeah, public statements. I mean, most recently, as, as Ben just pointed out, he said that God sent him as a doctor to, to cure Egypt uh, of its ails, but in in this context, they have trotted out um, all of the uh, what we would call in Arabic the ulama al-sultan, the the scholars of the sultan, the religious scholars who support the regime. They've trotted them out, and one by one, they've offered up um, undying support for Sisi. One guy, just to give you an example, an Azharite scholar from from Al Azhar University, he praised Sisi as a messenger of God. He called him a messenger of God. Uh, another scholar gave, uh, wrote a poem, uh, a very glowing poem about Sisi. I've mentioned Ali Guma, who's the former Grand Mufti, who has, has supported Sisi in his election bid, who has um, justified the repressive policies. Just last month, I should say in May, um, six young men were executed wrongly. They were hanged even though Human Rights Watch, Human Rights Monitor, and Amnesty International say that the young men could not possibly have committed the crime that they were accused of because they were already in jail. 
at the time the crime was committed, according to Egyptian court records. Well, Adi Guma, they trotted him out on national television, and he justified the executions and said the, that the, the government was right to, to execute them, and he condemned the six young men as, quote, dogs of the hellfire, kilabun nor, dogs of the hellfire. So this is the kind of religious rhetoric that we're seeing. Uh, recently, a uh, preacher, a religious preacher who's sympathetic to Sisi, gave a Friday sermon. And Friday is kind of the, you know, sort of the holy day, if you will, for Muslims, where they go to the mosque and listen to a sermon. There are large gatherings. And he recounted a story. And the story was, it was a true story, according to this sheikh. And he said that a man who disliked Sisi went to Mecca to perform the, the small pilgrimage, the Umrah, which is a religious ritual in Islam. And he went there with the intention of praying against Sisi, of making a supplication against him. And he said he tried for several days and his tongue became paralyzed. He could not utter Sisi's words in a negative way. And the man came back and said, he promises, he, he vows before God to only support Sisi going forward. And this was the subject of a Friday sermon given by one of the scholars who's sympathetic to, to Abdel Fattah Sisi. It's not just the Muslims. The Christian uh, scholars have also been very supportive of the Sisi government. It's very important to, call, to, to, to point that out, that the church has been very supportive of Sisi um, as well, including, including the Pope uh, himself. Uh, who just, by the way, donated, last month he donated a million pounds to CC's Suez Canal project. And a lot of people were, you know, sort of up in arms, people that are more truly revolutionary, saying, well, you have all these starving people, and you're donating a million pounds to CC's failed project in the Suez Canal. Um, and also, you know, not to mention the fact of where did you get all this money? Where did, where did the Pope get a million pounds. Um, apparently, you know, the, 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 complete money, noob, money of the complete Egypt noobs uh, watching at home, this is the Coptic Pope we're talking about, obviously, not the Catholic right. Pope. Just for, you know. Right. Uh, but, and, and the, but, I mean, the, the, the Pope, one thing, what, on that, one thing that people who take a very, you know, hostile... If I get to say one more thing real quickly, the Pope also... Uh, sent out a tweet on the day of the Rabah massacre, the, the Coptic pope, pope. He sent out a tweet thanking the Egyptian police and military for the heroic job that they did. He was attacked uh, savagely in the, in, the, in the Twitter world, as he should have been, and then he promptly deleted the tweet the next day. Are we still there? I'm here. Austin, you there? Did we lose Austin? I think we lost him. But yeah, definitely. And it, it seems really ironic that the fears that seculars and liberals had are very much in place now under the military regime that they actually endorsed. So you, you, you still hear the arrest of gays is happening, the violations being committed against 
you know, um, Muslims and Christians alike, there are still being there are still churches being attacked, there are still mosques being attacked, people are being attacked now for the way they dress. Uh, so the fears, what June 30th set out to accomplish, the argument for it, one of them was that actually we don't, we don't want to live in such a society where this becomes the norm. And it wasn't the norm so much as it is now. Now, if anything, the sectarian rhetoric has been up. I agree. And, um, yeah, I mean, Egypt is not a, it's not a secular society. No matter, you know, no matter how much some, some people might will or wish for it to be, it's not. And I think it's very telling that after Mursi was ousted, they wrote a new constitution, and they kept the religious article in it, the, the article 2 that says that Islamic Sharia um, is the, the foundation, or the principles of Islamic Sharia are the foundations uh, of, the, of the, the legal system. That article remained in Sisi's constitution. It wasn't removed. And actually, it's interesting because under that that 2012 constitution, if we want to talk about religion, uh, the 2012 constitution that was passed uh, when Morsi was president, there were the, the liberals in the assembly, in the constitutional assembly, made a couple of requests. The first was they wanted an article saying that Al-Azhar University, which is seen as this you know, uh, moderate Islam, they wanted an article that said that Al-Azhar University would be responsible for interpreting Sharia in, uh, in legislative matters that involved Sharia. And all of the Islamists on, in the assembly agreed to that article. Um, later, people that were ignorant of the constitution building process pointed at that article somehow inexplicably as evidence that the Muslim Brotherhood was trying to further, you know, Islamicize Egypt, right? And this was a liberal suggestion. There was another article that the um, that that non-Islamists, specifically Christians, re uh, requested in 2012, and it was article. It was either Article Three or Article Four, but it basically exempted Christians and Jews from Sharia, and all of the Islamists on the, the assembly, and I actually spoke to a liberal member of the assembly, I did an interview, an extensive interview with him, and he said all of the Islamists on the assembly, or in the assembly, agreed to it. Not only did they agree to the article, but even after the Christian members withdrew from the assembly, no one suggested that the article be removed, and it was kept in the constitution word for word, as the Christian uh, representatives had suggested. So I think this idea that Egypt was, you know, quote, becoming another Iran or, quote, becoming another Saudi Arabia, these were just greatly exaggerated fears that weren't really um, grounded in any substantive analysis. I'm not saying that people had no right to feel any apprehensiveness. I mean, if you're a totally secular person, I can understand how you might feel a little bit apprehensive about living in Egypt where the Sharia is uh, a very important part of the life. I can understand that. I can, I can get with that. But the point is, if you're going to feel that way about 
Egypt in 2012 and 2013, you should also feel that way now because in, for practical purposes, Egypt is, is still a deeply religious society. And it looks like we've, uh, we've just lost Austin. And um, do you guys, does anybody else have anything to say? Otherwise, we might want to just close off uh, the, con the conversation. We've been on for an hour anyways. People might be getting sick of us. <laughs> no, I, I just, um, I would like to add that it's actually, we think we, you know, since what's happening in Egypt, realizing we, in the West, we live, uh, alhamdulillah, it's um, freedom, we live better life, yes, um, this is true, but I've realized after campaigning for Ibrahim, it's actually, things are happening here in Ireland the same, but um, in Egypt things are more clear and more um, seen, where here in the West things are under the table, are not very clear. Like, I came across a lot of things which I faced in Ibrahim's campaign, and I realized this is the same, this is there's no longer no more respect human rights. There is no thing such a called humans um, respecting humans and human rights organization, and they're they're no longer independent, especially in the West. 